It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I can't even tell you how many times I've rewritten the scripts for Media Buzz this week. And it's only Friday morning. All that is going on here, the debate, the Trump town hall, the Hunter Biden stunt, Lloyd Austin situation, and on and on and on. And, you know, adding new sound bites and trying to make everything fit. That's television for you folks. It also leads me to an opportunity to say that uh, if you would like to catch the Media Bros program on Fox, 11 a.m. Eastern on Sunday, 8 on the West Coast. All right, uh, let's dive right in. Congressman Dean Phillips. You know who Dean Phillips is, right? Uh, A lot of people don't. He's a congressman who is really angry. He's running for president, by the way. He's a Democrat. He's trying to challenge Joe Biden. And he says, according to Politico, that... I'm appalled, I'm disappointed, I'm disgusted. What's this about? He can't get on MSNBC, the Dems' favorite network. They're just not having him on. Hasn't been on, let's see, since he declared his candidacy back at the end of October. Hasn't been on the Sunday shows. He's been on CNN several times. He says right media has been more than invitational. I don't think there's an MSNBC beaver that even knows I'm a congressman. Okay, so I don't know. He's blaming this on the Biden campaign. Doesn't seem to have any evidence that they're trying to block him from MSNBC. But look, the guy's down by 60 points to the president. When he held... An event just the other day, I think in New Hampshire, nobody showed up. Not one person. There's a photo that everybody used of him sitting, looking a little bit dejected, you know, on uh, leaning against his car. And, you know, unless you become somebody who at least has an outside shot, I don't know if there's any obligation Yeah, you'd think once or twice, given the 24-hour nature of cable news. Speaking of cable news, former CNN anchor and morning show host Don Lemon is starting a show on Twitter. Um, You know, why not? I think it's actually good for Elon Musk because it shows that he's not just um, a right-winger who has no time for anybody on the left. It gives a little bit more credibility to X. How the show does is another question. All right, this is wild. I, I mean, I, you know, I deal with a lot of sort of news of the bizarre here, but this is just wild. eBay. eBay has agreed to pay $3 bucks, having to do with a harassment campaign back in 2019 at a, uh, harassing a Massachusetts couple that had been critical of the e-commerce site. Now, 
This is from The Verge. The Justice Department charged eBay with two counts of stalking through interstate travel, two counts of stalking through electronic communications, one count of witness tampering, one count of obstruction of justice. This campaign was carried out by seven eBay employees, some of whom were company executives. They came up with a plan to target Ina and David Steiner, who have a newsletter, a newsletter that covers e-commerce, and had been critical of eBay. So not only did they make online threats, wait, it gets worse. They visited the couple's home to conduct surveillance and sent them grotesque items, including a bloody pig mask, a funeral wreath, live insects, and a book about getting through the death of a spouse. The former security director and the company's former director of global resiliency, whatever that job entails, were sentenced to prison in 2022. Why would a a company the size and breadth of eBay break the law in such disgusting fashion to go after a couple with a newsletter. What is the matter with these people? So now the company having to pay a $3 million fine. Um, On the Lloyd Austin AWOL situation, the Defense Department Inspector General saying yesterday it will investigate the mishandling of his hospitalization. And The House Armed Services Committee is going to investigate as well. Could lead to damaging hearings later this year as Joe Biden's running for re-election. This is according to the Washington Post. Chairman of that panel, Republican Mike Rogers, says the administration's inexcusable lack of transparency could have resulted in a calamity. And I agree with that. Also, there'll be a 30-day assessment directed by Austin's office. I'm sure that'll be tough. The White House is conducting its own reviews. When you have all these inquiries and probes, investigations and going on, it's not good. Keeps it in the news. Turns up new details that haven't been disclosed. And again, you know, Lloyd Austin has prostate, Lloyd Austin has prostate cancer. Biden is said to like him. Biden also has a natural sympathy for anybody battling cancer. And I don't know, but is he going to hang on? I guess it depends on his health. But I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, decided to move on after a period of time. Meanwhile, the serious news today from yesterday, finally, in my view, the Biden administration, along with the U.K., and support from other allied countries like Australia, Canada, and the Netherlands, launching airstrikes and naval strikes against over a dozen targets in Yemen. The Houthi militia. I've heard journalists pronounce it both ways, Houthi and Houthi. But now the Arabs are not liking this. 
The Houthis are pledging retaliation. It is an escalation, a sharp one at that, of American action because the Houthis have been threatening our people. They've been launching all these drone and missile attacks in the Red Sea, tying up commerce, going after commercial shipping. And, you know, the Biden administration kept issuing these warnings. Well, at some point, you got to deliver on the warnings or you lose all credibility. So apparently five people were killed in these attacks. President Biden saying this is a clear message that the United States and our partners will not tolerate attacks on our personnel or hostile actors to imperil freedom of navigation. British warplanes joining the strikes as well. Now, is this a risk of a wider war? Yeah, but what choice do we have? And I think it should have been done weeks ago. I think it made the U.S. look weak. The far left wing of the Democratic Party is like, how could President Biden do this? Because, you know, Congress has to approve it. Well, he's not declaring war on Yemen. He's protecting our own brave U.S. airmen and seamen. And many Republicans, you have members of Congress, mainstream members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats who are supporting this. But, you know, I have to confess I'm a little worried about what comes next. And for all this, all these threats by the Houthis, I will see whether it leads to a wider war or whether, you know, it leads to a U.S. being essentially at war with Yemen. More fronts opening up. Uh, Chris Christie talked a lot about him uh, in the last couple days. And Jim Garrity of National Review says he's glad to see Christie get out. But why now? And he points to an interview that the former governor did uh, just a few days ago with uh, conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt. He says... um, I'm a big admirer of yours, says Hewitt, but quoting Noah Rothman of National Review, he says, it's simply undeniable that he's hurting Nikki Haley, is doing profound reputational harm to himself. And Christie said, again, just a few days ago, Noah doesn't have the first idea what he's talking about, the fact that I'm running for president and no one's voted yet. I don't have an obligation to do anything other than to answer questions, tell the truth, run a good campaign and try to win. And, you know, where this has become Nikki Haley's campaign when no one's voted yet, kind of a mystery to me. Okay, so six days later, he drops out. Nothing changed. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe Chris Christie was just doing some soul searching. Story number one. New poll out from Suffolk University. Iowa voters. Republican likely caucus goers. 54% saying Trump is their first choice. Don't fall off your chair. The guy's had a huge lead throughout. 20% for Haley, 13% for Ron DeSantis. 
Now, the reason this is a big deal is essentially Ron DeSantis has bet all his chips on Iowa. He ran into financial problems. He had a lot of personnel problems. I mean, I interviewed him on Media Buzz just a week ago, and he was talking about the ground game and how, you know, he thinks that uh, he's the one who can make enough of a strong showing against Trump in Iowa that that will sort of give him new momentum going into the next early contests. But if Ron DeSantis finishes 13, 13%, if he finishes third in Iowa, there's a pretty good chance he's done because New Hampshire is not a good state for him. Iowa is a good state for him because, one, he's got the uh, endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds, and, two, there's a sizable evangelical population that he has tried to appeal to, whereas New Hampshire is more of a sort of blue-collar state. Democrats and independents can vote in that primary. So if DeSantis does finish third, we'll see, but uh, that's a major blow to his campaign. No other way to put it. Well, here's Rich Lowry writing in Politico saying that it may be that for DeSantis, Iowa actually ends it. He has more at stake than anyone else in the state where his campaign has invested more than anyone else. He has to hope that some combination of weather-induced low turnout, weather in the snow has been awful there, uh, an overperforming ground operation, massive polling error, lead to a shockingly strong finish for him. Otherwise, he's going to have to drop out or limp on as an afterthought. Uh, even if DeSantis holds off Haley, but finishes a distant second to Donald Trump, it will effectively be the end of the line. That's in the opinion of Lowry. Where is it going to get better for him? Where else is he going to get the endorsement of the sitting governor? A social conservative leader, that's Bob Vanderplatz, very influential in Iowa. Where else will he have the time to camp out almost full time? And uh, enough organization to replicate his Iowa ground game. That's the thing. You know, a lot of people say, why Iowa? Why New Hampshire? Um, and I understand that. They're, neither of them are representative states compared to a state like Nevada or South Carolina. You know, where you have larger minority populations, where you have more of an industrial base. In any event... If DeSantis, but what happens is, if I may interrupt myself, once you get through the first three or four contests, then it becomes a, a, a sprint. And you got a campaign in lots of states at once leading up to Super Tuesday in early March. It becomes more of a tarmac campaign. You go in, you have a news conference at the airport, maybe you go to one event and then you have to fly to this other place. And so you don't have the opportunity, and this is what enabled Jimmy Carter to win the nomination, uh, uh, not to win the nomination in Iowa, but to win the caucuses, 1976, and go on to win the presidency. Also uh, been replicated by Republicans, such as Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Ted Cruz, even though none of them went on to win the nomination. So... He's not going to do much better than the 6% that he has in New Hampshire, says Lowry. And that would be no help 
going into South Carolina. And, you know, maybe it was a mistake, the piece says, to for DeSantis to gamble so many chips on one caucus-going state. But he didn't really have much of a choice. He didn't have that many chips left. With Trump so strong, it was an understandable impulse to try to deal him in an early initial defeat, puncture his sense of inevitability. Otherwise, there was the risk that the horse would simply be out of the barn. I used that metaphor a couple of days ago. That horse gets trotted out a lot in campaign time. As it is, a Trump victory in Iowa may well start the ball rolling for his clean sweep of caucuses and primaries. Haley, by the way, has a less stark ver- version of the same issue as DeSantis. She's playing in Iowa, but can't really hope to win there. On the other hand, New Hampshire lines up perfectly for her profile as more or less a uh, throwback Republican who still cares about spending and who avoids extremes on cultural issues. I don't think Haley has to beat Donald Trump in New Hampshire, but she needs to come close. Otherwise, they each will have taken the shot, DeSantis and Haley, and neither of them helped themselves by spending two hours calling each other liars, bickering, trotting out the opposition research, barely talking about Donald Trump. That's the part of this I have never understood. You got one guy who's up 30, 40, 50 points. You got to beat him if you want to be the nominee. How do you do that without criticizing him? Not, you know, he didn't build the wall, but January 6th, he's not fit for office. You know, all the stuff the Democrats say. Okay, here's Brett Stevens, a moderate conservative in the New York Times, who's against Trump, who's going to spend all year arguing against Trump. But he said, I'm going to now try to make the case for Trump just to help me think through why it is that he has such a lead. I think it's an interesting exercise. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You can't defeat an opponent if you refuse to understand what makes him formidable. Begin with fundamentals. Most important geopolitical fact of the century is the mass migration of people from the south to the north and east to west, causing demographic, cultural, economic, and ultimately political shifts. Trump understood this from the start of his candidacy back in 2015. Only now, as the consequences of Biden's lackadaisical approach to mass migration have become depressingly obvious on the sidewalks, and in the shelters and public schools of liberal cities like New York and Chicago are Trump's opponents on this issue beginning to see the point. I would say it's Trump's best issue. I would say it's Biden's worst issue. And I don't understand why, knowing that he's bleeding politically from this and even getting sharp criticism from Democrats like New York's Mayor Adams, Eric Adams, Biden couldn't find a way, whether it's sending troops or making um, asylum seekers remain in Mexico, just hasn't gotten it done. And then you have the questions of institutions. 
Stevens talks about the CDC, elite universities, the media, the FBI. Trump's detractors, including me, he says, uh, often argued that his demagoguery and mendacity did a lot of to needlessly diminish trust in these vital institutions. But we should be more honest with ourselves and admit that those institutions did their own work in squandering through partisanship or incompetence the esteem in which they once been so widely held. Much of the elite media, mostly liberal, became openly partisan in the 2016 election. I totally agree with that. I wrote and talked about it endlessly at the time. It was a major theme of my book, Media Madness, about the first year of the Trump administration. Academia, we see this with the situation at Harvard and elsewhere, became increasingly illiberal, inhospitable, not just to conservatives, but anyone pushing back even modestly against progressive orthodoxy. The FBI abused its uh, authority. He goes on. Many rank-and-file Republicans regard the January 6th assault on the Capitol as a disgrace and the lowest point of Trump's presidency. But they also believe that it wasn't so much an insurrection as it was an ugly temper tantrum by Trump and his most rabid supporters, which never had a chance of succeeding. That's why warnings from Biden and others about the risk Trump poses to democracy are likely to fall flat, even with many moderate voters. All right, let me just um, close this segment with uh, Maggie Haberman writing in the New York Times. After that town hall event on Fox News on Wednesday night, when Trump was suddenly sounding quite reasonable. I won't have time for retribution. And, um, you know, political violence has no place. And Biden brings the bedlam, not me. Well, then he went on True Social. And was a little bit more aggressive, shall we say. And then he went to court yesterday in Manhattan on the fraud trial And even though it had been ruled by Judge Ngoron that he couldn't be part of the closing arguments, Trump asked to speak to the judge, you know, address him publicly in court about why he should be heard. And remember, what he wasn't supposed to do, according to Ngoron's order, is to attack the judge, the judge's court staff, or Letitia James, the AG. And instead, in addressing the judge and speaking really quickly as if he was about to be cut off, Trump did attack Judge Arthur and Gorin, did attack Letitia James, talked about election interference, all the stuff he wasn't supposed to say. And the judge let him go, could have cut him off right then, as he had threatened to do. Finally, he said to his lawyer, control your client. And then Trump abruptly ended. Get into that in the next segment. But what the point that Maggie is making is that Trump has a history of trying to modulate past statements and then reverting back to more extreme behavior. Look, I wrote about this a lot in the book and I wrote about it on Fox and I talked about it on Media Buzz and on this podcast, which is, I particularly remember other White House aides, which shall remain nameless, and advisors complaining to me that, you know, they got Trump to do something he didn't want to do, go out and hold a press conference and walk back something. 
But then two days later, he'd go off again because he doesn't like being told what to do, needless to say. All right, story number two. Trump's remarks, according to the New York Times, this is in the Manhattan courthouse, were chaotic and emotional and lasted only minutes, during which he impugned the attorney general, saying she hates Trump and uses Trump to get elected. He said of the judge, you have your own agenda. I certainly understand that. And as the judge was staring at him, he said, you can't listen for more than a minute, more than one minute. And this was the conclusion. Obviously, the lawyers continued later in the day. Um, And Goran has not only had a whole bunch of uh, death threats, but there was a bomb threat at his home. Turned out to be nothing. That's got to be sobering. I don't care how tough a judge you are. And remember... None of this is to convince the jury. There is no jury. And he's already been found guilty. It's a question of the penalty. Letitia James was asking for $250 million. She's now asking for $370 million. I believe Ngoram will will come up with a lesser number, at least certainly less than 370, to show he's being reasonable because all of this is about the appeal. What Trump is trying to do is debate the judge into saying things that could be used against him in his appeal. There's no question the judge will hit him with, well, we don't know how, quite how sweeping penalty can he not be able to do business in New York anymore, or will it just be a massive monetary fine? Either way, it's going to tr- hurt Trump, uh, his two adult sons, and the Trump organization, which employs a lot of people. So just to toss in the Georgia prosecution, it's been at least three days now, and Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, has still not responded to a court filing by one of Trump's co-defendants, guy that no one outside of Georgia has ever heard of, saying that she basically used public money to hire her boyfriend as the chief investigator. And he has made a whole lot of money. But beyond that, the Trump team now wants to know why this chief investigator in Georgia spent time at the um, Biden White House. Was it to set up interviews for the investigation? Was it something else? Was it tipping off anybody? You'll be hearing a lot more about this. Number three, Hunter Biden, after his um, storming into the House contempt hearing and storming out the day before, yesterday he was in L.A., pleaded not guilty to nine tax charges was told he should expect to go on trial in June. So we may see, if there's not a a plea bargain, the trial of Hunter Biden while his father is heading toward the conventions and the fall campaign. 56-page indictment. Hunter Biden failed to pay at least $1.4 million in federal taxes over a three- to four-year span. Failing to file, tax evasion, false tax returns. Three of those charges are felonies. The other six are misdemeanors. Now, the last plea bargain attempt blew up. And it's hard for me to see, unless he goes to trial and wins, how Hunter Biden avoids some jail time. If he pleads, this time it's not going to be, you know, you just get probation. And by the way, Jill Biden, 
in an interview yesterday with Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC, said the way the Republicans are treating her son is cruel. She had a couple of things to say about that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. I think I got to start paying attention to this. Here's the Axio story. How Speaker Mike Johnson, behind closed doors, urged his fellow Republicans to stop criticizing him and his budget negotiations on social media. Sources say. Um, just a few days now before there would be a partial government shutdown, which means that, you know, part of the government has to remain open so that um, social security checks go out and airplanes don't crash. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate side agreed to this deal with Johnson, very much like the Kevin McCarthy deal that lost him his job and ultimately gave up his seat in Congress. The Biden White House agreed. It does have some additional cuts that the hardline Republicans wanted, but they are not happy. Some of the hardliners saying they're not opposed, according to Axios, to uh, shutting down the government to try to get more concessions. Here's the problem with that. You only control one branch of government, one house of one branch of government, and there it's only by what, three votes? And so you don't really have the leverage you think you have unless you want to shut down, which I don't think would be great for any of the Republicans running for president. So Johnson said, here's my plan. Um, We got money taken away from the IRS. We got money taken away from excess COVID funding. And yet, the speaker saying to his troops, there's just not a viable path to get more in, in the current political situation. In other words, he's come to the same impasse that Kevin McCarthy faced. Opponents of the deal have argued the Republicans won't win with a shutdown. Uh, I think that's politics 101. And need to get spending behind them so they can focus on other priorities. While critics are saying they need to fight for more cuts, even if it means shutting down the government. Okay, here is um, conservative Republican Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio telling reporters that Johnson should never have been hired. But... Congressman Davidson, you voted for him. The way I know that is every single Republican voted for Mike Johnson after McCarthy was toppled, after Steve Scalise couldn't get it, after Tom Emmer couldn't get it, after Jim Jordan couldn't get it. So I guess you're saying you regret that vote. Man, is that a thankless job. All right, number five. This is an appalling scandal involving ESPN. This story was broken by The Athletic, which is part of The New York Times, but usually you have to pay extra for those stories. The New York Times just dumped its sports desk and said, okay, The Athletic is now our sports desk. Anyway, I'm looking at the write-up in The New York Post. ESPN got caught. Okay, you ready for what they got caught doing? The network. The sports network 
made up fake names for Emmy Awards. Let me read that again. Fake names, phony, people who don't exist, for Emmy Awards in order to honor on-air talent at ESPN who were ineligible to receive awards from the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences, which is the group that oversees the Emmys. So, and ESPN is not disputing this. Here's a statement. Some members of our team were clearly wrong, uh, you think, in submitting certain names that may go back to 1997. So this is over uh, about a 13-year period, maybe even longer in Emmy categories where they were not eligible for recognition or statuettes. Everybody likes statuettes, right? This was a misguided attempt to recognize on-air individuals who were important members of our production team. Once current leadership were made aware, so this is the part where it's like those other bozos did it, not us, we apologized for violating guidelines and worked closely with them to completely overhaul our submission process. Yeah, this is like you get caught, You say you're sorry, and that's when you're going to enforce the rules. So this goes back, the scheme itself goes back to 2010, getting awards for fake individuals, and get this now, re-engraving the statuettes and then giving them to on-air personalities, stars such as Lee Corso, Kirk Hebstreit, Chris Fowler, Desmond Howard, Samantha Ponder, were among those to receive the fake Emmys, according to The Atlantic. But, in fairness, those people, the on-air talent, were not in on the scheme. They didn't know the Emmys were fake. They didn't know they were ineligible. Former ESPN on-air person Shelly Smith said, I think it was really crummy what they did to me and others. If it happened to me, I would find a stronger word than crummy. Because what's happened now is, as part of the apology, as part of the, you know, admitting to this indefensible behavior, ESPN had to call all of the on-air talent and former on-air talent and said, you got to give the Emmys back. You didn't deserve it. We screwed up. We shouldn't put your name on it. Give it back. And imagine, you know, especially if you've moved on from the sports network and those Statuettes have been sitting on your mantle. What a, it's just a colossal fiasco. I don't have enough words to describe it that I want to share on this podcast. But we'll send you into the weekend with that story. Well, how did they think they were going to get away with it? And by the way, why didn't this come out earlier? How hard is it to investigate fake names? You know, either they did or did not work for ESPN. Hope you have a great weekend, folks. Uh, I think we're going to have a tremendous show on Sunday. Martha McCallum, one of the co-moderators, along with Brett Baer, of the Trump Town Hall, will be one of my many guests. And we'll talk about how she thinks it went, how she did, why they asked what they did, did they go far enough. And then we're back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.